you're listening to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Subscription Trends 2022 event. Um, here with Thomas Pettit and Eric Sufert. Uh, looks like we have a lot of people who've joined, so I won't dilly dally too much. But um, so a little little housekeeping. Um, this is our first time to host on uh, LiveStorm, new streaming platform for us. There's a chat. Us hosts will probably have a hard time uh, following the chat, but we do have some Revenue Cat folks in the chat. And then um, if you have specific questions, um, go ahead and drop them into the question section, and we're going to try and get to those at the end. So uh, Thomas and Eric are going to try and talk a little faster. We're All three of us tend to ramble a little bit. So today we're going to try and uh, be, be concise so we can uh, leave some, some room for questions. But yeah, with that, let me, uh, let me do some intros. Uh, Thomas uh, is a world-renowned mobile growth expert. Uh, independent consultant. Uh, anything else you want to say, Thomas? No, not much. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, special subscription topic of the day. And yeah, super glad to exchange with the two of you. And Eric Sufert as well, also uh, independent and writes for Mobile Dev Memo. Many of you have probably read his work, uh, prolific writer. I wish I could write a post every Monday like he does. Uh, <laughs> Revenue Cab wishes I would as well. <laughs> but yeah, welcome, Eric. Anything else you wanted to say? No, happy to be here. Thomas, you do like a one or two podcasts a week. Have you never upgraded your gear there? <laughs> what it sucks i've got a i've got a normal mic like one of those but yeah uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna ask uh, revenue cat to sponsor that <laughs> you should yeah <laughs> uh, all right so the topic of the day is uh trends for 2022 now uh thomas and eric both wrote uh fantastic posts as part of why uh we are hosting this event and, and decided to have both of them on Many of you have probably already read the posts, and if you haven't, they're they're both fantastic. Uh, you can search, you know, 2022 mobile dev memo, and and you'll find Eric's post. And then on the Revenue Cap blog, uh, Thomas did a guest post for us with some of his 2022 thoughts. So today, instead of completely rehashing those posts and just kind of talking through exactly what they had already written, uh, I'm going to try and and kind of summarize some of what they discussed and then kind of ask them the questions that I was curious about when I read their post. Um, so, so we'll try this format and, and see if we can't move a little quicker that way versus kind of rehashing the entire post. So what I want to kick off with, which I think is one of the more interesting trends that we've seen and, and Eric is predicting this trend is going to continue to grow in 2022. Um, and that's a term Eric actually coined in 2021 is content fortresses. So just a quick summary of, of Eric's writing on the topic is that, you know, Apple with app tracking transparency somewhat arbitrarily, but somewhat ways self-servingly defines uh, tracking as anything that is third-party data. And so the interesting part about that is that the more data you can collect as a first party, uh, the, more the more tracking you can enable. So for example, and, and he gave this example in his post, uh, Facebook Shops is 
a perfect way for Facebook to have complete visibility from showing the ad to completion of transaction with 100% visibility, 100% data collection. So sending somebody out to a Shopify store is very different uh, from a data collection perspective than being able to keep them inside the content fortress. And of course, in 2021, we've seen some pretty big acquisitions on that front. We saw Adjust acquired uh, the uh, mobile me measurement provider. Uh, Microsoft just acquired a huge gaming studio. Take-Two acquired Zynga. So there's a, a lot of uh, consolidation building these content fortresses. And again, you can read more about Eric's thinking on his blog. But Eric, so I wanted to kick off with a question to you is that with this trend toward content fortresses, what does it actually mean to mobile app developers? How can they partner with, what are they going to benefit from? And then what's maybe like uh, something they need to defend against or, or kind of watch out for with, with this growth of mobile content fortresses? Yeah. So I, the, the idea of a content fortress is that, you know, you've got, it's like an evolution of the walled garden, right? So like a walled garden is a platform or a property that sells owned and operated ad inventory, right? And the idea there was I buy that ad inventory and drive users to my property, right? So it's like a way of like renting engagement from a bigger platform. And why that doesn't work in this sort of new privacy environment, and part of that is the result of ATT, but, but the winds have been blowing in this direction for a long time, and they're going to continue to blow in this direction, right? Google is making moves um, around limiting the GAID, and uh, there are a number of bills that, you know, if passed, would radically alter the sort of like mobile advertising or the, just the advertising landscape. So like this privacy concern is driving things in this direction in a while and for a while. Um, but but the difference between a content fortress and, and, and a walled garden is, well, a walled garden and I come in and what it means to be a walled garden is that we've got inventory where you can only access it through our ad platform, right? Like we put a big wall around our inventory and if you want to access it, you got to pay us. Right. There's no we don't work with like middlemen. We don't work with ad tech vendors that sell our inventory on our behalf. But but ultimately, like the user clicks on an ad and they go somewhere else. They leave that property and they go somewhere else. Right. And the proposition there for the platform is like, well, we know they're going to come back. We know we're just sort of like renting their engagement. They're going to go to this property and make maybe they'll make a purchase. Maybe they'll start playing a mobile game or whatever. But we know they'll always come back. Well, you can't do that anymore with ATT. You can't, and you won't be able to do that with, with a lot of the privacy changes that are coming. And so what a content fortress does is it says, look, you're not going to be able to efficiently drive people to your independently operated property anymore. Why don't you take that property and operate it on top of our platform? And if you do that, when you buy ads from us, the transaction happens within uh, our purview, within our line of sight. We get to observe all those transactions, all that engagement. We get to keep the data that those those that engagement emits and we can use that data to optimize your ads in the future. So it all happens kind of within our environment. And you know, the canonical example is Facebook shops, but there's any number of examples that you can point to, any number of any number of ambitions that you can point to that 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 uh were the sort of outgrowth of very recent things. Like all this stuff is 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 been catalyzed by ATT. Um and so you know if you're an app developer, what does that mean? Or if you're an e-com retailer, what does that mean? And I've been kind of predicting this for a long time. I wrote, an, I wrote, I wrote a piece multi, many years ago uh, called The Future of app, Mobile App Stores. And like, what does it look like? Does it look like an actual store? No. My, my thesis there was it looks like a big platform saying, hey, you're better off operating in our app. So why don't you do that? You're not really independent anymore, but what choice did you have anyway? Um, and the example I gave was like, what happened if Uber absorbed, uh, you know, some other service? Well, they did that. They absorbed a lot of other services and they allowed yeah. the Uber app to, to deliver that. Right. 
And so, you know, it, things have been moving in that direction for a while just because of the competitive environment. But now because of the privacy environment, independent app developers are, are facing, you know, a real loss of efficiency in terms of driving people with these platforms to their own websites. And so what do you do? First of all, if you're an indie developer of anything, your valuation probably just took a hit because you're not able to grow like you were before. Right. Do you, do you think we're going to actually see some consolidation in apps as well? You know, like I, IAC is kind of a, a great example of the last, you know, five to 10 years, they've bought up a lot of apps. And, you know, I haven't, I've talked to a few people inside IAC over the years, um, and they do coordinate quite a bit, but they haven't always like pulled them all into one app store account and like share data across the multiple companies. Do you think we're going to see the rise of, of app conglomerates that actually pull together multiple apps in the, oh great, we lost Eric. I think we lost Eric here. Live event. I, I guess, I guess what we, what we've seen is like uh, on the bigger player side. Um, yeah. I mean, very, very big player buying big player. like take to Enzinga or, or the Microsoft example that you said, at a smaller scale, I don't know if the effects are there. I mean, I, I'm seeing a couple of apps that are, instead of trying to grow from 20 million to 100 million, do five times 20 million. But then the effects that Eric is mentioning, they just don't happen at that scale. Like it's kind of, right. it may make sense for other reasons, uh, but in terms of aggregating data, it's just it's just not, not, not at the same level uh, that would that would unlock those effects. And I think it's a bit of a, I wanted to say pee in the ocean, but that might be not. <laughs> well, one of the, one of the companies I have seen starting to make a move in this direction, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily data incentivized, but Reflectly has, has been buying up quite a few apps in the space uh, and kind of building this kind of mental health and fitness and kind of brand around the entire kind of core proposition of their original app. Um, so yeah, it will be interesting to see. And, and Eric, so I was asking you the question as you dropped off, do you think, uh, you know, companies like Reflectly that are starting to grow this kind of broader, uh, ensemble of apps, do you think we're going to see more of that? And even at a larger scale, uh, or do you think that's not something that's going to, going to start to take hold in 2022? So, so first of all, I was almost done with my rant. So I, I didn't, uh, we're, it's okay to move on. Yeah. I, I feel like that is maybe it's a strategy, but it's, that's hard to pull off. Right. Like I think what, what we're going to see is, and this always is the case. You, you see these big platform policy changes. It's going to benefit the biggest, the biggest yeah. participants. And so I think like, yeah, maybe Reflectly can, I don't know how big Reflectly is. Right. And, and I hear a lot of great things about them, so maybe they can execute this. But it's really, really hard to start from a much smaller like MAU base and do like a roll-up strategy, right? Yeah. Usually you need to be like much bigger scale to, to pull that off. So like it's, it's like the people kind of in the middle, um, maybe some of them can roll up and become big. Uh, probably what happens is a lot of them just end up losing, uh, losing momentum and then getting rolled up themselves. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think one of the more interesting trends there that I've been watching is Apple um, becoming their own uh, app content fortress. So th it seems like they're kind of picking off the, the major kind of subscription app use cases one by one. They made a big push in their weather app, which that's a huge, uh, and I have a weather app, so I, I pay attention to that closely. Uh, Fitness Plus, you know, goes to head to head against one of the biggest categories of subscription apps in the app store. Um, so it's gonna be interesting to see music. Yeah. Um, well, did you see that news did, did, plus? And I mean, it goes on and see, on podcasts. The, the thing yesterday with like, 
Neil Young, uh, yeah. the folk singer, he he left Spotify because of Joe Rogan, and like the next day, Apple Music had like oh, uh, <laughs> had, had a, a contracted him with like exclusive access. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Google and Apple play this because they're in some ways best positioned to actually go after, you know, all the kind of biggest use cases on the app store and Apple's clearly headed that direction already for services revenue. But then that brings us to the second topic that I want to ask Thomas about, um, you know, should Apple be regulated? You know, they're competing head to head against Spotify. Fitness Plus is competing head to head against Peloton and other apps in the App Store. You know, between the Epic lawsuit, the Open App Markets app, small app developer settlement. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Apple's being bombarded from every side. Uh, and again, Thomas wrote extensively about this in the uh, guest post he did on the Revenue Cat blog. Uh, but I'd love to hear kind of where does the rubber meet the road in 2022 for app developers, Thomas? Do, what do you think we're actually going to see? Where do you think we're going to see meaningful impact? It's like there's a lot of noise right now, but there's not a lot of action. So are we going to see action in 2022? And what's it going to mean for app developers? I'm afraid we're not going to see like a meaningful action like worldwide on many points at the same time. And the, the problem for regulators is there's so many different aspects that they have to look into. And at the moment, a lot of the conversation has focused on, on third-party payments and the fee. And on that particular topic, I think absolutely nothing is going to happen uh, because Apple is going to push back because it's going to take a while. At the moment, what we've seen is very localized a little thing here in South Korea, and then just the dating apps in the Netherlands. Uh, I remember on Mobile Dev Memo, somebody joking like, what's next, productivity app in the Vatican? Like, <laughs> and I think here, like, it's kind of the, the, the okay, third, pay, third party payment may be a thing for a bunch of developers, and the fee may look high for a number of business where it doesn't make sense. But for most developers, this is pretty relevant because IP are efficient and even if they're low too i don't think a lot are going to do it just because the the difference in cost is not going to be justifiable and i i don't think we're going to see huge maybe huge change in terms of regulation but not huge change in terms of how user pay normal developers this this would be a huge bridge if uh, suddenly the biggest one the biggest revenue driver which are gaming apps could start building their own and maybe it would have a dent, but that's the one thing they're going to resist. That's why Apple uh, lowered down to uh, to 15 for subscription only because it doesn't hurt them that much. And that's why they're opening here and there. But I don't think we're going to see massive change here. And in all of this, there was conversation on, on side loading, like allowing, allowing you to install from third party, which I don't think is going to be as easy. It's a load on the Google Play. Try to do it. It's a nightmare. So nobody does it. And in the meantime, the conversation on how the platform actually competes with developer, with like Fitness Plus and Apple Music and News and so on, just doesn't happen. And I think here there's a much bigger bridge in a sense, because, okay, the platform has a lot of control, but as soon as the platform is also a developer in a way, it's kind of directly threatening for, for developers. And I haven't seen that conversation happen at all uh, at the moment. Yeah. Uh, kind of Except surprising. Spotify kind of brings that up a lot, but but we haven't seen enough actual action on that kind of stuff. Eric, what do you think? Do you agree with Thomas? Do you think we're going to see much impact in 2022? 
It's it's hard to say. I I think you don't see anything meaningful unless the U.S. steps in, and I don't know that there's a lot of like political willingness to do that. Um, I do think maybe you see the the, the EU is probably more likely uh, of a sort of governing body or the EC rather to 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 make a decision there. Like, but you know the Spotify. Uh, lawsuit predates the epic lawsuit right and like yeah. they ruled on it but they didn't really issue a judgment and so we'll see what happens there i i don't know it's just hard to say i think the way that apple is playing us now is like we go geo by geo we go category by category and we make it so difficult for you to even uh embrace these options that we make available to you that you're just going to revert to the defaults right like the thing about what what's really frustrating about the the, the dutch ruling is that apple said okay fine we'll let you do alternative payments but you've got to upload a, a dutch store exclusive SKU. who's going to do that no one's going to maintain a, a, an app SKU and then a separate one for just the dutch app store which probably represents 0.5 percent of revenues or something like there's just no way now the yeah. dutch regulator did push back and they find them and so they're going to find them every week until they actually comply but that fine is nothing i mean that's just like a fly buzzing around apple's ear it's 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 not even irritating um, so I don't, I don't see any real movement there. My sense is that like, if you're an app developer, you should be planning on paying the full platform fee and utilizing the native app store systems for a long time, unless you want to, unless you want to really try to build out in the direction of the web and build a real workflow around pushing people onto the web. Right. And that means doing UA for the web. That means communicating via email to get people onto the web, to try to get people to make their subscriptions on the web. Now that takes a lot of work as Thomas will tell you. And I think, you know, that that's probably a really interesting discussion to have, but like, how do you make that work? It takes a ton of iterative testing. It takes a big team. Yeah. It takes like a growth team. It's not something that, you know, most, you know, one, two, three person developers can actually pull off. Yeah. And, and um, to kind of bring us back in, I, I think the most interesting thing we're learning from 2021 that, that, that predicts what's going to happen in 2022 is that Apple's going to fight tooth and nail. So, yeah. so like, you know, it's a perfect point is that, you know, if you're, if you're a big developer and have the resources and time to try these things, you know, more power to you. And there are successful strategies on the web and win back campaigns that push people to the web instead of the app. And, you know, then you can actually measure performance because you can do it in a more sophisticated way, but it's just going to be hard. And with Apple pushing tooth and nail and things starting to potentially come down geo by geo, it, it's yeah. just going to introduce more and more complexity versus more and more simplicity for developers, more regulatory burden than kind of regulatory creation of freedom among developers. Um, so yeah, Apple, Apple fighting the way they have, I think is, is, is in some ways a, a bad sign for the, the ecosystem more broadly that they're, they're putting up a fight versus kind of starting to make some concessions in the direction of, of uh, making things easier on developers. But with that, I did want to shift to breakout app category. So Thomas uh, uh, had a great section in that guest post about uh, apps that he thinks are going to kind of break out and kind of trends happening in 2022. Uh, yeah, I'd love for you to, to step through that, Thomas. Tell us about some of those app categories you think are going to do well this year. Well, that was, that was a bit of a risky bet, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in some spaces, I, I see kind of an evolution and I, I try to sort by by big blocks and like kind of health of fitness is one I was very involved in. And I, I was lucky to take kind of the first wave when suddenly all the fitness app like had a big boom and 
I was just in the right place at the right time. And like, oh yeah, I can do workouts based on my mobile. And it, and it's been fairly growing big in 2016, 17, I'd say. And then suddenly you see another wave come, comes and in maybe 18 and, and 19, it was like a lot more uh, focus on, on meditation. And the space, the whole category was mostly like, okay, first fitness, then meditation. And now it's very exciting because we're starting seeing like a very innovative product that are not as simple. And I think like those waves, they keep going. At the time, Riff, for example, I believe Reflectly couldn't have grown that much if mm-hmm. before Headspace and Calm didn't open up an adjacent space to theirs. They're not doing the same thing, but they kind of open up a next wave. Uh, one thing I'm slightly worried about here is those waves, they tend to go more niche, which means there's a lot of business to open for indie developers and small size company. But a lot of the ideas I'm seeing coming now, I'm not sure they're going to be a billion dollar company. Like, and it's fine. It's just you have from the get go. I'm more worried for some investment that thinks that some very niche mental health or whatever, uh, comp- mental health is huge, but the approach that we start seeing are more and more niche. And I'm not sure those are going to be billion dollar company, but it can be very viable business for one, yeah. five, 10, 50 people. Uh, no problem. And uh, so uh, a few of them were around um, around sleep, a lot of them around uh, the workspace as well. And um, in the sense that, I mean, also with COVID, the way we work has changed a lot. And there's a lot of like, a little bit of a merger between B2C and B2B in that sense. Um, maybe it's not a huge up, but I think it was kind of relevant that uh, Alan, uh, a French startup that works around uh, social benefits for worker, uh, acquired uh, reflective competitor Jour and to integrate it within their services. And I think that was kind of a very interesting move uh, among others. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure we're going to see another count in those subspace. There's just so many of those subspace, like professional yeah. development. I mentioned an app called Bunch, Bunch uh, AI in, in there. Um, and the app is fantastic. Like it, it's it's amazing. Like in, in a way, like in personal development, kind of Blinkist opened the way for a lot of new products that, I, that I'm, I'm, I'm seeing now uh, in that space. So so that's one. If I look at, at productivity in, in particular, something a little bit similar happened. Like uh, first it was like, okay, I'm normal photo editors, like general, generic photo editors, uh, basically doing Photoshop on your mobile in a, in a simplistic way, in a more simple way. And then now what we're seeing is a lot of the space is gearing towards creator, how to make better TikToks, how to make more mm. professional stories, uh, because there's a huge demand on that in a, in a category that is not only at a personal level, but also at a semi-professional level, like not, not uh, multi-million dollar YouTubers, but actually a lot of mid-sized influencers that want to grow professionally and, and that those apps gears towards. So it's kind of uh, also a blurring line between, between B2B and B2C here. Lots of uh, apps targeting small businesses and, and individuals. And I'm seeing a lot of innovation in, in that particular space in, in photo and video editing, uh, CapCut is going crazy. And, uh, and I think they're going to drag behind them 20 medium-sized apps that are going to gross <laughs> 20 or 50 million a year. But yeah. none of them might become a billion-dollar company and maybe CapCut is going to be the only one. I don't know. Right. Or, or TikTok is just going to buy them out and that's it. 
And what do you think is going to happen in uh, Web3 and crypto in 2022? Kind of a, a big topic. Uh, every, everybody's talking about it uh, at the end of 2021. Uh, and with, with crypto crashing a bit the past few weeks, do you think that's going to kind of put a wet blanket on, on all the hype? No, I don't think so. Like, uh, I mean, pff, the price of crypto is doomed to go up and down. Like the fluctuation is part of it. And now it's, it, it took a little bit of a crash. Maybe there's a much bigger one coming. I have no idea. I was just mentioning this category because I think at the moment, for, for very understandable reason, like kind of this whole development has been done entirely outside of, of the app world. And I, I see there's something limiting adoption going mainstream is UX of all this product uh, in Web3 are, uh, is generally terrible. Like it's a lot of product made by developers for developers, yeah. but without, without like the accessibility that, that, uh, that, that grandma needs to, to start using it. And I think the mobile, because it's so personal and everybody has it, uh, is the way to open it up. In some sector, it's going to be blocked just because you can't transact uh, crypto so easily and the platform is, are not going to be too happy with that. They're mostly blocking a lot of them. Yes, you can use Coinbase and there's an OpenSea app, but there's a lot of usage that they want to low. I still think that there are a lot of, of things to open up in that space where you don't need to transact to actually unlock the, the benefit of that. And and it will it will benefit Web3 in the way that this is what can allow adoption to really soar beyond the... Because right now, everybody's talking about it. But if you look at the, the, the people really involved in it, it's actually a very small, small. small mm -hmm. amount of people. And yeah. it was more wishful thinking that if a few innovative apps come there, that can really change the game for, for Web3 in the sense that normal people will start having real usage. It won't be only speculative or only uh, developer-minded uh, application. Um, so hopefully. Yeah, we, we need to see that breakout app in 2022. Or, or yeah, I think it's going to continue to kind of flounder and be more hype than, than uh, delivery. Um, I see there's a, a lot of chatter in the, in the uh, chat, uh, more focused on how to grow. Uh, and so 27 minutes into the uh, webinar, let's uh, switch gears and start talking more kind of rubber meets the road of like, what do, you know, all this stuff is going on, so many changes, like how do we actually adapt our businesses in 2022? And with that, I wanted to start with you, Eric. Um, one of the things you talked about in your post is the battle for measurement authority. And I, I found that really fascinating. Um, you know, a lot of people have talked about even pre-ATT, uh, you know, MMPs, self-attributing networks, like there was, a, there was already a battle for measurement. Like it was not as accurate as people pretended it was. Uh, but now we're moving into a place where not only is it, it not accurate as people want to think it is, but it's just hard to do, period. And your point was that, you know, we're going to have, you know, Facebook coming out with one solution and claiming installs and we're going to have Google coming out with other solutions. And there's going to be a battle for whose source of truth that are we going to use. Uh, and we, I don't want to rehash that thinking here, but I would love to hear from you. How do developers, and then especially developers in kind of an earlier stage where they don't necessarily have the kind of volume and the budgets to um, to explore at scale, how do we find a way to like somewhat reasonably accurately in some vague way measure ROAS? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think you've got to think about those groups um, like as being very distinct from each other and, and the strategies are very different. Right. So like, I think if I was launching a subscription app today and it was just me, right. Let's say I developed it myself um, for growth. I would be just very focused on like what I think my most viable channel is, is probably Facebook. Right. I would be driving as much traffic as I can to the web and trying to wrap my arms around that as much as I can. Right. Um, because everything you send to the app store now is going to be mostly like muddied, right. In terms of what you can measure and what you can, um, push into a model. Right. So I would be trying to drive everything to the web using only Facebook. Right. And I feel like I would just start there. And if I felt confident that I was, I had very, uh, clear and sort of like systematic, uh, uh, growth that was, that was kind of informed by my model, then I would start thinking about expanding from there. Right. Because you can't, what the problem is now you can't really rely on these ad tech partners that are supposed to do this for you. You just can't, they're not doing it, uh, in a way that best serves your interests. Right. And I'm talking about like MMPs and I'm talking about many of the other kind of ad tech solutions. Right. So I would be just trying to do this myself using one channel, simplified as much as possible, drive as much as I can to the web, try to capture as much information as I can from the user on the web and then push them into the app. And I feel like if I could manage that workflow and I felt confident that, 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 that my model was reflective of reality, then start to grow, diversify in other channels, start trying, trying to drive people to the, to the app store. But I, I feel like that's where I would start. And that's where I would try to master and perfect before I got any, before I did anything else. And you could do the one person can do that. Like one yeah. person can manage that. Now the, the, the website is you, you might, you know, outsource a team to just do the, create the, the content and create the onboarding. Cause you're going to want to test that a lot. Um, but I feel like if you're able to do that and you're able to get people through a web onboarding, you're able to capture a lot of data about them and then push them to the app. That's like, that's like fairly transparent, uh, measurability. But if you're trying to push people to the app store without any of the, the, the tools that like the bigger teams have, you're just, you're never going to be measuring that correctly. Now, once you get into like a medium sized company, then you start thinking about, okay, we're going to do incrementality testing. Um, we're going to do, you know, survey. How did you hear about us when, when you hit the app so that we can kind of try to, we can try to triangulate like the source of the users, but all that stuff takes people. It takes yeah. analysts, right? It takes models and it's hard to do with, you know, one person show. So I think like if I was a one person developer building a subscription app, I, that, that measurement, I would manage it that way. Cause again, with, if you drive people to the web, you have UTMs, right? That doesn't go away. So you still capture a lot of that information. Then you can get their email address right away. They potentially subscribe right away. You can do a lot of things that allow you to like close a loop that doesn't violate ATT. Right. right. And, and keep in mind, all this stuff is coming to Android too. No one's talking about it, but it's all coming to Android. It's going to be slower. It's going to be less extreme. But in three years, Android is going to look like Apple looked like right before ATT, which was a high penetration of LAT on, right? Which made the sort of MMP claims such an egregious farce, right? <laughs> you had almost 50% of people in the US that had, had LAT on. So what were the MMPs doing? But anyway, um, I think the other thing that I would be doing if I was um, a one person subscription app developers, I'd be testing pricing rigorously, right? And I'd be really trying to think what's the optimal price and what's the optimal subscription length to keep people engaged because really your goal as a subscription app and like any kind of SaaS business, right? Like the, the model is kind of the same. You've got to compound subscribed users. You just have to make that compound over time. That means you have to retain those subscriptions. And so if you're doing a one-year subscription, your most important metric is year two renewals. Right. If you're doing a three month subscription, your most important uh, metric is, you know, month four renewals. 
that that has to be the core focus, making sure that you retain those people. And pricing plays a lot into that, but also like the content journey, like what content's available? Why should they stick around? Do they get everything they need in the, the first three months, right? All that yeah. kind of stuff is super important. And, and the way you do that, the way you bake into a lot of that retention is with social features that, 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 that make the app really sticky and then make the content fresh. Yeah. And then, so, so I kind of framed the question around, you know, small and growing developers, but we do have some, some fairly large apps and, and people who work with fairly large apps tuning in. What, what's your advice to, to apps that are doing a million to $5 million a month in revenue and have the budgets and the people, is there anything that, that, that you're hearing from uh, the people you talk to or seeing with your own consulting of, of things that are working right now for bigger apps? You've got to get them. You've got to build the measurement apparatus. You can't depend on MMPs anymore. You've got if you're going to be using you know multiple channels at scale, you've got to do the measurement yourself. It's hard. You've got to build the, the tools to do that, right? And that's doing incrementality testing, media mix modeling, having these kind of probabilistic models that give you some sense of clarity around which channels are providing the best users, right? And and that's hard. It's just a lot of work, and it takes a team. Um, yeah. But it's super important because you know you outsourced that to the MMPs before. Well, they weren't they weren't really doing a good job of it. Right. But now they can't do the job at all. Um, and so it's, it's the onus is on you to do that. Do you think the MMPs and other solutions are going to help bridge that gap? Or do you think it's a gap that, that the technology has to be so tailored to the individual app and an understanding of that individual app that it's not going to actually work as a software as a service as it has in the past? No, you could build those. I mean, those tools could be, you know, platform tools. I mean, that's what, that's what I was talking about in the blog post. I think uh, Facebook's going to offer these kind of tools, right? Right. Um, but, you know, they're going to work best if you only work with Facebook or the vast majority of your right. spend goes into Facebook. You know what I mean? And, and I wouldn't trust a tool like that offered by Facebook. That's the problem. Yeah. There's, there's a bias there, right? Um, I think, but I, I'm shocked that the MMPs aren't pushing into this space. They're trying to cling right. to this. They're, they're trying to cling to the status quo. Like even a clean room is not recognizing what the future looks like. The, a right. clean room is not a robust solution. A clean room will not be allowed. And it, can't, it won't be able to operate. Once you lose the IP address, a clean room is not gonna, it's not gonna function. Like I really don't understand why they're just clinging to this status quo and this idea of deterministic user level attribution, or even now they call it probabilistic user level attribution. That's not gonna fly. It's not gonna work. It's not future proof. Yeah. And, Thomas? And, and, yeah, I mean, I, I agree here that for me, it's a bit of a surprise that they haven't jumped onto, okay, how can we become the standard for media mix modeling or incremental? If I was leading a just or branch or absurd right now, what I'd do is I'd snap a company like incremental or metric works and, or, or build it internally, which maybe they are, but they're not selling it yet because it's the continuation of it. And it's going this way anyway, and not everybody can or won't build this this internally. If I take one, one example of a mid-sized app, like like you say, we did build this in-house. Took us eighteen months to get to first act actionable results. Wow! Uh, of course, if I have a SaaS that package it, uh, the time I would have saved on that and. Plus those uh, engineers and data people that I have working on that I have other things to to get them to work on. It's just there was nothing in the market that was that was good enough. Like I'm not saying building your own is not is not good. I'm saying there is definitely a space there, and it's surprising not to see MMP go towards it because it's completely aligned with the mission they were fulfilling um, until until there. Then. Not thinking about vendors, but thinking about the developers themselves. 
you have to be aware that uh, it doesn't fully replace it. this new reality is never going to be the same as before and that the result that media mix modeling can give you or that incremental uh, incrementality model can give you they're not just they're just not the same level of granularity they're not the same level of confidence and you have to live in a world that is more blurry this is just the way it is but i'd rather seeing 2D with one eye than being completely blind. Like it's yeah. a no brainer. So we're not going to have 3D vision, which was a bit of a fake 3D vision, like Eric said, but at least I, I, I want to triangulate this reality in different ways. And in, in this particular case that I mentioned, where we build our own media mix model, we also have a provider for incrementality. That is a, that is a SaaS that we're paying for because the two things answer slightly different methodologies and they help us raise a little bit confidence when we see that different models are pointing towards the same direction. Yeah. You know what, the, just to piggyback on your comment, um, you know, the, 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 the biggest issue, like, first of all, I don't think the MPs can build this stuff. I just don't think they can, like they have, they, they were, they, they're not product led companies, right? They're sales led. They've got kind of commodity tech. Um, I think the other thing though, that you see is like, it's it's like okay you build a media mix model and even if it's working you st you still have to adapt to a lot of the a lot of the changes that att uh created right and the the biggest issue that i see a lot of i would say mid-size and, and and smaller right so one person shops but also you know medium-sized companies that are spending a decent amount of money is like the whole creative paradigm change like you can't it's not just spray and pray anymore right like that was the idea just create a ton of different stuff and try everything um, and Facebook will figure out what works. Well, that doesn't work. That, that can't happen anymore because of the restrictions with ATT. And so, you know, my sense is like there was a reliance, I think, pre-ATT on like these creative outsourcing companies, right? Like agencies that do all your creative for you. And that's why they were so valuable because, well, how are you going to do all that creative yourself? And they can, they can pump out 200 pieces of creative every week and you can do the spray and pray thing. Well, now you've got to be a lot more thoughtful and, and a lot more considered about what, what you're building, right? Because you don't, you can't deploy 200 creatives a week. You just can't. You can deploy like 10 or 20 maybe. Um, and so you, and so they have to be like, like conceptually very distinct, right? You can't just be doing iterations on the same thing, um, to see like, Hey, does the blue background generate more, uh, higher click through and better ROAS than the, the green background or, you know, the, the, the character has or whatever, like, um, you know, have blue hair versus yellow hair. You've you got to be just uh, much more sort of distinctive and, and, and radical with the differences between the creatives. And so that to me means, well, maybe you don't use these outsource shops anymore. Maybe you really do have to, in, you know, insource that or in-house it uh, or, uh, or, you know, have like kind of dedicated freelancers to doing that because it, it also requires a lot more knowledge of the product, right? Because a lot of these creative shops, the dirty secret is a lot of these creative shops had templates and they gave you the same ads they were giving to your competitor. Right. And like, you never knew that because there were so many ads, right? How would you ever even see the chances of you seeing that are, are very low, yeah. but they would give you the, you know, they would change it a little, they would change it a little bit. It's not the exact same. They would make it, you know, they would sort of make it a little bit bespoke to you, but the general template was the same. And so th that was a big problem because you were just competing with like basically the same content against a, a company that made a, a, an app that was, you know, very similar to yours. And so you're just driving up each other's prices and you're zeroing in on the ads that work for each other. And so there was kind of like a death spiral in terms of prices, right? Well, you, you can't do that anymore. You've got to build the stuff yourself and it's got to really be informed by deep knowledge of your product. Yeah. I'm going to bounce a little on that. I agree. I agree with that. It's just because I saw in the chat that a bunch of people were talking about a lookalike and is this the return of interest targeting on Facebook? 
what I believe is that this interest they actually never works at all, and that the lookalikes they are also slightly not like uh, damaged. Let's say they're not as efficient as they use. But then that's where you have to approach like creative is the targeting. The way you the way you target audiences is by actually crafting the the targeting into the into the ad itself and and facebook still has like first party data on engagement on the ad and click through rate and view rate that shows them oh yeah this ad it looks like these people like it and that's how you're going to do the, a lot of the targeting which is another reason to bring it uh, more in house because you'd have to work for a very long time with an agency for them to understand that deep level of, of user persona and on how your product is different. Um, but I think that's a good way of thinking about it, like that the creative is the targeting right now. Yeah. And um, a lot of the questions that we're, we have in the, in the question section has actually hit the, the next few topics I, I wanted to cover. So uh, with that, let, let's go ahead and shift to uh, to start to take questions. And I want to kick it off with um, Karthik's question with at t with ATT, can paid ads still work for small startups? What platforms and methods uh, for running ads do you think will still work? Um, so Eric, you already kind of talked about this a little bit. And then I was actually really interested in, in how you were talking about resisting the temptation of brand-centric thinking. So, so in response to AT&T, uh, there has been a lot of talk about, you know, just, just spray and pray on brand advertising kind of stuff and don't worry about measurement and just, you know, get the message out there. Um, so, so, so first, I'd love you for you to just kind of touch on, on on why you think people apps still need to do the hard work of making um, direct response advertising work, and then piggybacking on that, um, are there some high leverage organic channels, brand marketing that you do think can complement the the direct response advertising? Yeah, I think people get confused when they talk about brand mark or they confuse the term brand marketing for for what for what it is right brand marketing doesn't mean just like unmeasured uh spend right like like spend where there's zero follow-up on on what the result of that was right like there's direct response marketing which is i show someone an ad and i expect them to do something or i hope that they do something immediately after seeing it there's performance marketing uh, which is more of a mentality. It's more of a mindset. It's like I spend money and I've got some sort of model that evaluates uh, that spend. And then there's brand marketing, which is the, 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 the purpose of the advertisement is to, is to sort of build some sort of association in the person's brain so they make a purchase at some point in the future, right? And the direct response in the brand should always uh, sit under that umbrella of performance marketing. There's no, there's no non-performance marketing. There's no opposite of performance marketing. Like brand marketing is a, is a, is a distinct tactic from direct response, but they're both performance marketing. Like there's no such thing as like non-performing marketing because you wouldn't <laughs> hire someone to do that. Right. So I think right. if you're doing brand, you've got to understand what you're actually trying to achieve. And what you're trying to achieve is that if you have a digital product, the next time someone sees an ad for it, they click on it or they're more likely to click on it than they would have been if they hadn't seen your brand ad. The brand ad should create this sort of like ambient pool of recognition in the user's brain so that, hey, I remember, I've, I remember seeing a, an ad for that product. That looks pretty cool. I remember, I remember thinking when I saw the ad for that product, I should check that out. I didn't go to the app store and download it because I'm busy and I got stuff going on. But now that I see the ad and I can just very easily access that product by clicking on it, I'm really happy that I did, right? It should, the brand marketing should elevate the performance of the direct response, right? And what, what, what worries me 
in this environment is you get a lot of people that come from like big brand agencies or they come from big brands and they, they don't, they, they've never worked on digital products, right? They work for brands. They work for CPG brands, right? And so they don't really grok that, that, that sort of, um, you know, fundamental difference between I'm trying to sell a brand that you're going to see in a shopping environment when I go to the grocery store and I'm primed to buy stuff. Like I've built that association in the user's brain. So I don't have to follow up with showing them an ad because they're going to go to the grocery store. They're going to go to Best Buy or whatever. And they're going to go to Amazon and they're going to see my thing. But if you're an app, the idea that someone's going to see your product without prompting them first with an ad is insane. No one goes to the app store and just browses around. You go to Barnes and Noble and you browse around. You go to Amazon and you browse around. You don't do that with the app store. You don't go to the app store. You only go to the app store after you click an ad, right? And so that, that brand thinking just sort of poisons the, the sort of marketing um, mentality at these companies. And the problem is, it's almost like, you know, it's, it's non-falsifiable. A brand person comes in and say, I oh, know we're going to do all these brand cameras, we do TV, we do podcasts, we do radio. We don't need a, we don't need a model because, well, well, it's just going to remind people about the product. They'll go seek it out. And you say, no, they don't. That's not a behavior on the app store. It's not a behavior on mobile. People don't have to seek out stuff on the app store. They no, they don't open the app store on a day-to-day basis. No one just opens the app store. Like, Let's see what for sale today. Not in the same way you do when you go to the grocery store. Right. And so, but the thing is like that magical thinking is so intoxicating to CEOs because what choice do they have? It's like, well, we don't want to do the hard work of building a media mix model. We don't want to do the hard work of hiring five analysts and, and four, you know, UA experts and, and, and tying this all together with like, you know, a statistical foundation. This guy says we can grow our audience by running on TV and we'll, and I can, I, I can brag to my friends that my company's on TV right now. Isn't that cooler than having this team of people that speak a totally different language to me running kind of, you know, it, running sort of independently. Um, and so, and so I just, I, I worry when, you know, we come into this environment that like a lot of people are going to be, um, I don't say duped, but it's just going to be like the brand idea is going to be way more appealing than it was. Right. And uh, so I'll counter this because I, I can already hear people in the audience saying, no, that's not true, Eric. People do search the app store. But what, I think what, what you're trying to say is that at scale, people aren't browsing the app store. And, and I see that like when my apps have been featured in the last few years, it's nothing like it was in 2010, 2011, 2012, where people really were going to the app store like, hey, let me see what's new. People still are but not at the kind of scale that's meaningful enough to build a business around. Similarly, and this is, this is you know, advice Thomas and I both give to, to anybody who asks is that, you know, when you're first starting out, app store search ads are some of the best paid marketing that you can do. And so, so I want to try and fully answer this question. Can paid ads still work for small startups? So part of my answer would be start with app store search ads because there is really high intent when somebody does actually open the app store and search, you know, weather app or, you know, get fit or whatever. But to Eric's point, that doesn't scale like that happens, but it happens at a much smaller scale. You you can't buy your way to a large app with app store search ads. It's a great channel for the, for what, however much you can scale it up to, but it's, it's just not going to scale big. So any other advice, Eric, uh, as we wrap up the answer to this question of, of how smaller apps uh, should be thinking about um, making paid marketing work instead of just trying to, to find organic channels or, or just trying to get the name out there? Well, just one, one thing I point out is like, yeah, so there's, there's I, some people do search, right? Some people do open yeah. up the app store and they search, right? Of course. Um, but that's a, there's a fixed volume of that search, exactly. right? That doesn't really grow over time, right? What, what, so that's not a scale channel. 
Like you'll, you could saturate that and then what? Right. And, and the thing is like when I see scaled companies spending, let's say, I don't know, 2 million plus a month, um, app store search is like two, two to 5% of spend. It doesn't yeah. scale. It, o- it only shrinks as you grow the, as you grow the spend because there's a fixed number of people searching every day, right? You can't grow that. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I would just like, I, I would really hammer on this idea of like, I would push, I would try, I would try to be pushing people to the web and capturing as much data as I can. Right. Not just, not just like first party, you know, identifiers, right. Like the email or whatever, but trying to catch as much intent from the user as possible. What do they want to get out of your app? Right. Because right. if you can, if anything you can do to sort of like, and, and you have way more, you know, way more opportunity to sort of personalize the experience on the, on the web than you do on the app. Right. Cause if you want a personalized experience on the app, you've got to develop all of that. It's and and if you want to like do any sort of like personalization, it's a lot of work. You got to update the app every time you want to change something for the most part. Um, yeah. with the web, it's super easy to make a change to a website, right? And so you just have a lot more, uh, flexibility there. And I think it's just a way better way to onboard people, um, to, and then to, to capture those really, really high intent users and then drive them to the app. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Thomas, this next one is for you. And I'm actually really curious about your answer here. Uh, for devs that run one Facebook, uh, AAA ad, is it worth investing in an MMP? And then I'll expand on that answer. Kind of where do you see MMPs slotting in currently in kind of the, the growth stack, you know, from a smaller app to a medium sized app to a larger app? At what point do you think slotting in an MMP and in what level of sophistication of ad spend do you need that kind of tool? Yeah, I, I won't be as radical as Eric. Like uh, in some <laughs> cases, it does make sense to have one. And, and I'm pretty sure actually most apps uh, Eric work with still have an MMP. So there must be a reason they're paying them for. <laughs> but uh, I guess when, you, when you're when you just barely starting, like putting an MMP is not the first thing you need to do, basically because you can operate the basic networks without one. Uh, yeah. Apple Search Ads as, a, as, a, as its own attribution that you can build. Uh, Facebook, you can go just with just setting up your event through the SDK and uh, for scan. Google, you can do just with Firebase. All of this is free and it's not very complex technically to build. You're not going to take months to build them. Uh, influencers, you're just going to extrapolate the result. So I guess you can survive for actually uh, a little while at the beginning. Then comes a time where I believe like uh, the MMP still makes a lot of sense because then you expand to network where they do uh, operate probabilistic uh, attribution, which is helpful because you may find the value for Android. And also because on, on, the, on the web to app side, actually uh, it is extremely helpful to have that uh, done. I mean, you can build your own, but uh, I, I don't know a lot of people who do. They just rely on the MMP to do that, and it makes a lot of sense. It's technically legit or at least tolerated under ATT because it's your own media. Uh, user is on your website, so you're crossing your own data towards the app. And in here, you need a lot of, like, you want the granularity of, okay, that user is coming from that flow or that flow or that campaign and so on, because then you can inject those UTMs into the app. So. At that point, it does make a lot of sense. In the very, very early phase, unless you make a strong bet from the get-go on the web and maybe you build yours, it does make sense to have it. But it's true that historically, I would have put an MMP much earlier, two, three, four years ago, than I would do now. Uh, there's still a moment that I, that I wanted at the moment because there's so many holes 
in in SCAD network, and especially there's nothing for web two app, which uh, I think is a is a is a big problem. So a lot of people have the MMP um, for web two app, for Android, for probabilistic printing, and in some case also for the for the developed in uh, if if you have a ATT. So there's still a number of reasons to have it, but if you're just starting, it's not necessarily the first thing you need to do. Yeah. And to piggyback on that, because you you actually already started talking about it, um, and, and this is a this was actually a topic on on Eric's uh, prediction as well. Um, the question from Usman: um, Some platforms developed probabilistic measurement models. What do you think about probabilistic models? Is it reliable for 2022, or is it still an early stage? So, Eric, you have a lot of thoughts on this one. Give us the uh, give us the two to three minute answer on uh, probabilistic measurement and the future of it. Well, uh, but did I say? I mean, I don't think I said you don't need an MMP at all, right? I mean, I think it, you need one, right? I mean, you need if you're going to be operating on Android, you need one. So, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate for not getting an MMP. I just want to be clear. Um, yeah, probabilistic. Yeah, so no, so probabilistic measurement. Yes, fingerprinting. No. Right. The problem is Apple doesn't say what fingerprinting is. And so the MMPs ran with it. Right. Um, what I don't think is going to be viable is what's happening now. Uh, when I think about probabilistic measurement, it's really like probabilistic, not a fingerprint where you can say, well, it's probably this person because uh, the fingerprints match. Right. That's what that's what that's what probabilistic attribution looks like right now. It's not, you know, using actual probability models which is probably what's, that's the more forward, you know, forward looking sort of like future proofed solution. I, I think the way that fingerprinting is being done right now is going to be shut down. My, my, I have like, let's say I'll call it, I've, I have 60% sort of uh, certainty that Apple is going to restrict the access uh, from apps to IP addresses um, with the next major release of iOS. And so, you know, by the end of the year, it, it won't work. So are we in um, so, a make hay while the sun's shining phase then of just yeah. go ahead and use the probabilistic while, while, while it's still fairly accurate? Well, you don't have much choice, but that's a problem. It's not yeah. that accurate. You're, you're, it ends up cannibalizing right. a lot of organics, right? right? And so, yeah, do it, do it. And rely on these ad networks that, that are relying on the MMPs for that. I mean, it, it, it'll help you grow, but understand that it's not future-proof. Yeah. All right, moving on. Um, uh, and actually, Thomas, I'd love to to get your perspective on this one. And then Eric, of course, you can jump in. I'll I'll, I'll try and give you opportunity to respond because that that was a an important clarification on the MMP. But the next question is, uh, how do you suggest testing pricing rigorously? So we we you know Eric, you talked about that earlier, but I wanted to start with Thomas's thinking on on how do you price test right now. The, the, the first thing I'd say about that is I think there are way too many people who test this, like try to A-B test it way too early when they don't have the cohort that is required. And those tests, it, it kind of looks simple to put like, okay, I put a monthly here, a yearly here, or I put $50 a year and $100 a year. They're so easy to screw up in design. They're so easy to screw up in analysis. But let's let's admit you do it right. There are tools that are popping up, or maybe you've got experience with that and you can do it is by no means as easy as it seems. Uh, I'm working on that with a team that has like six people only on this and they still screw up once in a while, you know, in the design. <laughs> but let's say you pass that. I mean, the amount of uh, of data you need to have relevant uh, results that have statistically significant results is kind of big. I mean, I, th I think at the moment we're, we're taking roughly 400 payers at the first renewals, which means like, 
a massive amount of users, like uh, dozens of thousands of users. And there are a lot of people who try to test way too early. Um, my, my answer here is, in the, if you're in this case, don't AB test, make radical choice, go for it. And if it does make a huge difference up and down, you'll end up seeing it just because you have to release and move on. You don't have the luxury to, to go into the rabbit hole of this testing. And there are so many things you can test in terms of the price, the layout, how many options, the free trial, is it seven days, is it 14 days? Like it just never ends. So you have to take like extremely radical choice. And I think a lot, way too many people just, just um, there, there is definitely benefits to get there. And, and you can, at the beginning, unlock 20, 20, 30% output just because you change your paywall. But after you iterated a little bit on that, you realize that the gains, they're, they're incremental, but they're like two, 3%, they're hard to measure. And you realize that it's more of a whole change of experience that makes the, like stop doing incremental and take big leaps into, okay, maybe I put the paywall as the first screen and at the end of the onboarding or not at all, or choices of how much freemium and premium are you giving is a much better question than right. should I price $50 a year or $70 a year? Like the way you think through your strategy about, about paywall is going to, is going to churn people more or less at the same time. And it, it needs to be linked to typically, do I have strong network effect? I'm, I'm Strava or I'm all trails or Komoot. I have strong network effect. You don't want these plus 10% output that are actually churning people because you depend on the activity of the rest of the user to, to bring more. And that's why you're seeing apps that have very, very little network effect, having extremely strong, aggressive paywalls, especially in the fitness space because they don't have any of this uh, network effect. And I think it's much, especially early on, it's much healthier to think about where you put the cursor in this strategy of, of freemium premium than to iterate the hell out of your paywall. I'm not saying yeah. they are not huge benefit there, but, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm saying people are usually testing too early. And, and yeah. too early and too small details. Test, if you go and want to test, okay, go for it, but do huge thing, like not, not small things. So Eric, one of the, the things I've learned from you um, is just how different different cohorts that you bring into an app are going to perform. So for a small app that does some price testing early on, makes a big change. Like Thomas was saying, they go from $20 to $40 and they see an amazing mm -hmm. improvement. But most of their traffic is coming from uh, organic, you know, search. Yeah. Uh, it's a smaller cohort. As they grow and start doing ads, that price that was like exactly dialed in for that early traffic might not actually be the optimal price for, for the traffic that they're buying as they grow. What, yeah, what are your thoughts on price testing and then potentially how you evolve that over time and retest some of your early assumptions as you expand your, your marketing channels? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the smaller the scale, the larger, you know, the effect sizes you should be testing for right so it's like and and i think there's two things to test it's not just the price point it's the duration of the subscription right um you know because that can play a big part right in renewal rates so you know if you got a yearly subscription obviously the price should be bigger than if it's a quarterly or you know monthly um uh, you know but you got to test those things in, in in a way that in a way that gives you like valid you know sort of data right or you know statistically valid data or statistically valid results actionable results and, and so they just start big and, and move smaller as a scale grows, right? So, you know, at 10,000 DAU, you're probably looking at like yearly versus quarterly or something with like just big price differences at your, as you're at 
a hundred thousand uh, DAU, then your your sub, your you know, you're you're testing within that yearly package, and you're testing within that uh, monthly package or whatever different price points. And then as you're at a million DAU, you can test kind of everything. And um, but I mean, at some point, especially with pricing, you can't test forever. It's not just something that you always leave on. You should be looking to make a decision. Um, but you know, you you get more sort of ability to go granular with with more scale. And so I would just be thinking about at first, like, okay, I'm going to test just different durations and maybe even keep the price the same, right? Uh, you know, just to see which one people are more, which one improves conversions the best um, and, and start there. But like you, you, you can get more granular as you get more scale because you'll get more users into each group and you, you'll have, there's more likely getting statistically valid results. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to skip a few. So, so it's 12.02. The, the event was, you know, technically supposed to be over two minutes ago. Uh, Eric, if you need to bounce, Thomas, if you need to bounce, just feel free to just, just drop off when you need to. But I did want to try and answer a, a few more questions. And uh, this one I thought was particularly interesting because I, I just hear it come up over and over and over again. Um, and it's from AK. Any thoughts on affiliate marketing for utility apps? which network to go with, what to expect. So uh, Thomas, let's kick it off with you. I mean, you hear it all the time, you know, how do I do referrals? You know, are referrals gonna work? What, you know, what is affiliate marketing something that's a viable strategy to, to bootstrap? It feels like everybody's asking these kind of questions. So what are your thoughts? To some extent, if a referral can work when it's between from your users, but uh, in terms of affiliate, I, I've seen some people being successful on the web in the app world, what I've seen is just like the amount of fraudulent traffic and nightmare you have to manage is just never worth it. Uh, I can't think of a single app that is uh, small or medium that actually has a significant share of traffic coming from, from affiliate or even, even small. I mean, it's kind of weird that uh, it never happened, but... Um, and there are companies out there. I'm not saying they're all scams. It's just they are trying to to also uh, fight against it. But it's just everyone I know who tried has just dropped that ball on mobile. It's just just a nightmare. Yeah. The way I've I've come to think about it more and more is that um, for the companies that do it and do it well, it can be incredibly successful. But as with almost anything, it's hard to do right. And so if you're gonna spend the time and effort to build out the tools, to invest in the strategy, to find the affiliates, um, are there potentially lower hanging fruit where you're gonna get a better return for your investment of time and money? And from what I've seen, and as you said, like there just aren't great examples of it working and like really blowing an app up. I mean, yeah, you have the Ubers with like referral marketing where, where you have uh, a $20, you get $20 free if you refer a friend and they get $20 free. It's like, yeah, those things work, but they, but it's also like they work at Uber scale. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, personally, I think there's, there's often for most apps, there's just better places to spend your time and money, especially early on in the app journey. Yeah, that's, what, that's also my point, but uh, I'll make a correction because I just remember now that the question was specifically for, for productivity Affiliate. app. Yeah. And uh, in that space, in some case, it might make sense, but I wouldn't go and look for what are the mobile affiliate network. What I would look at is how do non-mobile productivity tools uh, use affiliate, something like, I don't know, uh, AppSumo, where you, where you discount 80% temporarily or something. 
and just promote it there, even though it's not made for an app. I was just like, use the mechanics that work for professional tools that are not apps and just go for it instead of looking for general uh, mobile affiliate networks and then try to plug there. So they still may, in the case of productivity uh, apps, uh, be some, some particular cases that absolutely make sense. But for most of the other verticals, I would rather stay away and, and, and work on, on, on other tactics that seems to be more uh, efficient for many people. There are always exceptions. It's just uh, in most cases, I do that. Yep. We should probably start wrapping up. Let me see if I can um, hit a few of these fast. Uh, what's the average churn you are seeing for paying users after month one, month two for utility apps? Part two, <laughs> any recent learnings from testing you may have done to reduce churn on trial uh, paying users early on? So I'll uh, defer the answer on the first one. So um, at RevenueCat, we just hired a data scientist and I am beyond myself excited to finally, after two years of being at RevenueCat, uh, start doing some benchmarking posts so uh, no promises on when or, or exactly how detailed they will be. Uh, our data scientist is also working on other things and I can't uh, uh, steal all his time away from our product team <laughs> immediately, uh, but we will be uh, posting uh, much more of this kind of thing uh, to the blog and maybe even doing, doing some events around kind of understanding benchmarking and stuff. So I'm gonna defer that question, but I think this, the second question is really interesting for you, Thomas. Any recent learnings from uh, testing you may have done to reduce churn of uh, trial and paying users early on? So actually, I think the two the two questions they are linked. You know, uh, when you take one step in in isolation, it's 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 hard like to to understand what's what's happening overall. And typically here, let's say you've got an extremely high churn just after the payment, so like kind of the first renewal is extremely low and much smaller, whatever the benchmark is. Maybe it's because you force too many people into the payment in the first place. So the, the, the first thing you, you like, not the first thing, but one thing I would look for is actually how aggressive I've been before, like what kind of traffic I've pushed onto that step, uh, because maybe there's very little to do, like because the traffic composition and the experience they had was so bad that you had to anticipate it. And very often to improve a step, you need to go to the step before, one example that was kind of interesting last year and that a bunch of companies have adopted is uh, what we call the Blinkist paywall, where basically you tell people you're going to notify them at the end of the free trial to try to improve the uh, free trial to payment conversion. And I think here, once you're at that step, at the conversion step, the biggest driver between first payment and uh, first renewal is pushing people to use at least X time the, the app or I, I, I've done at least what I call activities, whatever your app is. If it's meditation, that they completed three meditation. If it's a workout, that they completed three workouts. If you're a photo editor, that they shared three edited photos or something. And you really need to push hard on that to improve payment rate. Uh, if your app is good enough, like because usually people churn because they don't use it. So it's a lot of onboarding improvement so that people would actually realize these activities and habit forming and at some point push notification as well. If you see somebody has completed two of them, but it's not coming back and you know that the regular pace is twice a week, uh, you have to win them back once they're still there. Um, typically, if they still open the app, but don't complete the, the action, 
uh, move through in manap message or remove some feature or be a lot more explicit about uh, way too many times I see like apps that have many, many features and people ask, hey, why don't they complete that one? That is the main one. It's because they're distracted. Like maybe make something simpler that drives people to do that action that is driving retention, which in turn is driving renewal. So maybe simplify a little bit the, the app experience itself. In-app messages, like dynamic in-app messages are very efficient. And eventually, if they're already off the app, uh, push notification uh, would be a main driver. But I, I guess my, my answer here is, you're not going to convince people not to churn if they stop using the app. So that's the only way. Well, I don't have, have much to add there. So there's one question here that, that I'll take, because I, I think this is a really fun question um, and something I think a lot about. How viable is it really for solo app developers to earn a living in 2022 on the App Store? I've heard apps are dead, et cetera, which of course is not true but still it seems difficult to make a living off it with such a crowded app market. I guess I need to learn marketing. <laughs> so uh, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. And my answer is that in some ways it's easier in 2022 to make a living off of apps than it ever has been. But there are a few key points to make around this. One is that, and I'm not just saying this because I'm at Revenue Cat, but I really do think that the subscription model has opened up the opportunity to, for smaller niche apps to make enough money to make a living off of. But that's, that's kind of the key number one is that what you need to do is like, don't go out and try to be the next headspace. If, you're, if, if your goal is to be the next headspace, that's just a, you're, you're building a different product you need to start with some level of funding because yes, you know, competing and growing is going to be brutally hard. But if you're a developer and you want to make a go at, at being an indie developer and, and making a good living on the App Store, instead go the opposite direction. Go really, really niche, but in a niche that that people are willing to spend money and that people find valuable. And we've talked about this on, on, the, on the Subclub podcast quite a bit. If you haven't seen that, uh, subclub.com, uh, Fishbrain, uh, we had the CMO on recently and, and you know, they're, they're actually a huge app. So this is not even solo uh, developer kind of stuff, but the fishing hobby, people spend thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on boats and trips and other stuff. So if you're a solo developer looking to make a living right now, go find a niche, one where people are going to find it valuable enough to spend money. And then two, where there is some form where you understand how you're going to get attention for it. Don't, don't go build an app and like have this, if I build it, they will come kind of mentality. You need some level of built-in marketing. So uh, I think knitting apps is a really interesting example. There's there's three or four uh, good ones, and and um, there's one from uh, this solo developer Becky, who I don't you know I don't think is is making a living from it yet or anything. But it's a really interesting niche where if you can deliver enough value and if you can embed yourself in a knitting community. And, you know, if you're part of a really big Reddit forum where you're not pitching your app, but, you know, you're asking for feedback or other things, if, if you can find a, a community, a niche that has some level of built-in marketing that people are going to get excited about it, they're going to share it on their knitting YouTube channel, they're going to share it on Reddit, they're going to tweet about it because you're just bringing so much value to this little tiny niche that's just underserved. If you're going to make 
a go at being a successful Indian in 2022, I think that's the approach. And yes, you absolutely need to learn marketing and think about marketing from the very beginning. It's that you have to you have to know how your app is going to get attention before you go build it. I mean, you know, you you can throw things against the wall and hope they're going to stick, but if you're going to spend six months building an app, um, you need to spend a month doing some market research, really thinking about how you're going to get attention, really kind of you know validating some of the ideas that people actually care, that people are actually willing to spend money for it. So, with that, I think that's a, a pretty good summary. Any any uh, any follow up there, Thomas? Yeah, no, I, I also believe there's still lots of opportunity. And, and I'd say almost almost even more, like because the big space are taken by big guys and and, and it's not done, but uh, yeah, you're not going to move it space and calm. It goes more niche, more niche and more niche. But then VC-backed company, they won't have the skill to make that niche go to the VC goal, which open up right. a space for maybe not solo people company, but small small teams to actually make a, a really good living out of it. And and I think there's so many unexplored of this of this niche that we haven't think of. And it's kind of exciting. But then when we said you think about marketing, probably that marketing is not going to send all your money to Facebook. You're going to have to be a bit more creative because that niche has a particular community that goes with it. And and this is where you're going to look for it. It's not going to be as simple as Okay, I'm just going to put my money on Facebook and it's going to come back because the more it goes and the more Facebook and Google works for the bigger guys. So you're going to have to go specifically to your niche, to go to your community and be super active on that Reddit, uh, on that subreddit or be inside and, I don't know, recruit the one influencer of that niche and, and have him as an ambassador or something. You're going to basically have to embed yourself into the community of that niche, which is a very different kind of marketing than just uh, putting 100 grand on Facebook and see and see if 200 grand are coming back. Uh, yeah. I think for these niche apps, uh, marketing means a totally different things that it does for the for the bigger guys. Absolutely. So we do need to, to wrap up, but I, I, we can't leave Andy Carvel's question just sitting there. Andy's a, a good friend. So Thomas, I'll let you take this one. Uh, which apps do you see doing really innovative stuff when it comes to subscriptions, either in terms of paywalls, bundling, pricing, or something else? Well, one app uh, that that you mentioned, so it comes to mind that is very interesting for me is is Fishbrain because they're 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 having this this subscription model, but that's just one part. I mean, first because they're a community, they can't push the paywall too hard. Otherwise, they're gonna churn a free user and they need the network effect, so they can't go too hardcore. But they complemented it with other business model that makes a lot of sense for them and. Of course, if you're an angler, you're going to need some some material, some hardware at some point. So I think for them, it's like extremely uh, natural to go towards hybrid model. And I see going towards hybrid model. So in their case, it's subscription and e-commerce, but it can be other things. It can be subscription and ads, can be subscription and non-renewables, can be subscription and offline revenue, maybe your, your Amazon affiliate or whatever. Uh, I see this as extremely interesting and, and relatively under tapped at the moment. Like most subscription apps, they're like, yeah, we have subscription, that's it, that's what we do. And they don't they don't go a lot beyond that. I, I think we're gonna see a lot more of, of this example. So uh, Fishburn is one. I, I'm mentioning a couple of others on, on my post in the in the on the Revenue Cat blog. Uh, another one was a, a fitness app sweat that is 
has bring this has built kind of this brand around uh, around the their leader and so they can sell branded goods around it and of course you can put a, a totally different markup when you already have the audience hooked and convinced towards your brand that uh, you would sell a, a, a random object so basically my answer here is I'm seeing relatively little innovation in terms of it's not how you design your paywall or the pricing or you made that trick. Plus, you have the tools that Apple gives you and there are ways to 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 bring them creatively. But it's mostly for me complementing subscription with other models that is that is the most innovative. Well, I think that's a great, great way to wrap up. We talked about from the smallest apps of, you know, how do you potentially make mm-hmm. it go in 2022 to don't think you're going to make a lot of money on merch as a small app, but for the larger apps uh, are finding a lot of innovation in, in diversifying. Um, so yeah, if you're a small app, don't have six tiers of subscription and non-renewables and, and all this kind of stuff. But as apps grow, there are opportunities to really diversify revenue. And, and I do think that's uh, something we're going to see a lot of in 2022 is experimentation, diversification, and, and innovation in broadening the the monetization beyond just that $9.99 a month subscription. So yeah, with that, wrap it up. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, Eric has has already left, but uh, really appreciate him joining us today. Um, so, and thank you guys for participating and um, for asking so many fantastic questions. And uh, sorry, we weren't able to get to all the questions. Um, we did almost go in an hour and a half, um, but uh, we're going to be doing more of these sorts of things uh, here at Revenue Cat. Uh, so keep an eye out on, um, on your email for, for future events. Thank you. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.